Hello, Grace family. As we're here today to encounter God, we also get to do so in the context of a faith community. And that means in the midst of our messy and broken lives, we also get to experience love and grace and truth from one another, that that's how God's designed his church, and it's a high calling. And he invites us before we worship together to make sure that our hearts are right with one another, that we are at peace with people in our church community. In Philippians, excuse me, in Ephesians 4.2, it says, be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another. And so I want you to just think for a moment, are there people or a person in your life that has been particularly hard to love right now? Does anybody come to mind? Maybe it's that you have a difference of opinion and that's been challenging, or maybe you've been hurt by somebody. Maybe there's people that just bug you, <laughs> or maybe it's that in these various situations we've been experiencing, you don't necessarily respect the way that they've been handling themselves. Whatever the case may be, I want you to think about this passage in the context of those relationships. What would it mean to be humble? in those relationships, to be gentle in the ways that you engage, to be patient with them, or to bear with them? What does it look like for us to truly love as family? I want you to think about these people, and let's just pray that God would work through these relationships to show what he has designed our church family to be. We'll pray now. Father, we just thank you that you are a God who you love us and you bear with us and you are faithful even when we lack faith. We thank you that you have designed your church community to be something so utterly different than the relationships of the world. And so, Father, we ask now that as we think about these people in our church community who have been maybe harder to love or that it requires us to do more bearing with Lord, we ask that your spirit would move to bring healing in relationship, to bring peace, that you would be at work in our church family to truly allow us to be family together in these times that have created so much dissension and disunity. Lord, may our church look utterly different than the world around us, church, by your being present and moving and working in the relationships we have here. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come quickly, your Your kingdom come with me. 
So today we'll be looking at Mark 1 and Jesus's relationship with his father. So this is Mark 1, 29 through 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So he traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. So today we begin a new series that's really a follow-up from our kingdom series. So, so far this year, we've, we've looked at kingdom life. What does it mean to live as kingdom people in this world? And really that series was sparked by a concern we had that we've all so much in this last year been experiencing the kingdoms of the world. We feel ourselves more than ever caught in the conflict of kingdoms. And we began the year by looking at these first century kingdoms that Jesus lived within and how relevant those are to our own day, these temptations to move towards revolution or to simply compromise with the culture or towards simple religiosity or to look at the whole thing and say, man, I just wanna withdraw from the whole thing. But what we saw is in the midst of all those earthly kingdoms, Jesus invites us into this utterly different way of being in the world, this way of humility and peacemaking and truth speaking and love of enemies and purity and generosity and care for the least of these utterly different way of being in the world. And so now what we want to do as a follow-up is ask this question. So if that's kingdom life, so what, what fuels that kind of life? Like what's, what's the center out of which that kind of life is possible? Because it's a really radical and unique kind of life. So 
you know, what's the source? What's, what's the life-giving center of kingdom living? And the answer, of course, is going to be something like God and his grace, this rich, dynamic, intimate relationship with our God that is the center out of which kingdom life can flow. So last week, Daniel Watts taught on the vine and the branches, which was a perfect introduction to this series. So let me show you the image one more time. So we might say using this image that so far, we've been looking at the fruit, the the kingdom life, fruit of love and generosity and all those ways of living that Jesus invites us into. And now we're going to ask the question, but what drives that fruit? What produces that fruit? And the answer is, is, of course, this connection to the vine, this deep connection with our God, drawing from his life, as Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's what this series is going to be about. How specifically do we remain connected to the vine so that kingdom life flows out of that connection? Specifically, what are the practices? What are the rhythms? What are the habits? What are the inputs that will help us stay connected to our God so that we can live from this life-giving, grace-inducing, courage-producing center of relationship with our God? And I want to say also that this series is also birthed out of a concern that we have, just as the first one was. And and just as we're concerned about all the kingdoms of the world that surround us these days, we're also concerned with something else that we've seen this past year. And it's this, that, that the church in America is in a crisis in terms of what it's drawing on, in terms of what are the practices, rhythms, what are the inputs that we're going to, that we're drawing from, in terms of how we live our lives? What are the things that we're consuming, that we're we're staying connected to, and how is that impacting how we're living? We've all realized this this last year, probably more than ever, that we are consuming a lot of of cable news, of a lot of social media, um, a lot of podcasts, a lot of things that Daniel mentioned last week, a lot of these things that are fine in moderation, but that overdone leave us simply anxious or angry or both. (laughs) As we've been more in our homes more than ever, we we have been consuming more, you know, streaming video services, which leave us entertained, but leave us spiritually apathetic, spiritually numb. So we're, we're going to certain things that aren't setting us up to thrive. And we've lost certain things that do set us up to thrive. Obviously, COVID created a situation where we couldn't gather together in our familiar ways for corporate worship. And so we've been more divided, more disconnected than ever before. All that to say, there's been these certain inputs, things we're going to and things we're missing out on. And the result is that our spiritual health, I think even our emotional health, and certainly our relational health with one another is in need of repair after the year we've been through. So maybe more than ever, we need to be asking the question, what are those life-giving rhythms and practices and inputs that are going to enable us to live kingdom life. So what we're going to do is I'm going to just spend a couple weeks talking big picture about this idea, and then we'll move and look at very specific practices and rhythms that we can engage in. And these these won't surprise any of you. You'll know what they are, but we're going to get really practical. How do we actually make this a practical part of our daily lives so that we're living from this life-giving center? Okay, so that's what we're going to do. And what I want to do today is I just want to start with Jesus. I want to look at the master at work. He lived kingdom life unlike any other. And so I want to simply ask the question, what was his center? What was the center from which he was drawing? And what were the some of the ways that he drew 
from that center. So we're actually going to look at a number of passages from Jesus' ministry today, and we'll start with the one that Christina just read. And I'll just read these passages briefly and make some basic observations about them, and then draw some simple conclusions that I see from Jesus' own life. So let's look at our passage today in in Mark 1. Um, This is, I think, a recording of one of the early days of Jesus' ministry, certainly. And uh, as you notice in the passage, uh, it's an incredibly busy day. It's an incredibly fruitful day. It begins in verse 29. Uh, in the synagogue. So Jesus spent the morning in the synagogue, and what we find in the passage before that, he just uh, cast out a demon from a person. So he spent the morning in the synagogue, and then he goes to Simon Peter's house, and verse 30, he uh, heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. And then word gets out about that, and people start, you know, the whole town gathers at the door, and he's doing this ministry at sunset and far in deep into the night, He's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's been teaching, all all that to say this uh, incredibly fruitful and busy day. And then in verse 35, we get a very different verse from the rest of the passage. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And then Simon and the companions are looking for him, say, everyone's looking for you. So this incredibly busy day, and then before dawn on the next day, he just slips away, goes to a quiet place, and spends time with his heavenly father. And then he emerges from that and says, it's time to go to the other villages because this is why I've been sent. All right, so you see this rhythm of this fruitful kingdom life, and then he withdraws to connect with his father, and that that leads him to then the next day in another town, which is going to be another day of fruitful kingdom life. We see the same rhythm actually earlier in in chapter 1 at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is uh, in verse 9. I'll read this to you. It records the baptism of Jesus. So it begins in this very public setting, John the Baptist, lots of people right at, at the Jordan River. And then Jesus goes in in the midst of the crowds to be baptized. And verse 10 says this, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And then at once, the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So he has this public moment, this great affirmation by his heavenly Father. You're my son. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. And then that launches him into this this period of withdrawal for 40 days, where he's just alone, sitting with, What does it mean to be God's son? What does it mean to be his beloved? With his God, also with Satan and being tempted with other ways of what that might be. But this time of withdrawal, this time of reflection and prayer. And then that launches him then into his public ministry, which begins in the next verse where Jesus starts going in the towns of Galilee, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Okay, so you have this public scene and then this intense period of withdrawal. And then again, that launches him into his ministry. Let me show you a couple other passages from the book of Luke. So here's Luke 5, 15 and 16. And the context here, I'll just read you two verses here, that Jesus has just healed a man with leprosy, and then he tells the man to go to the priest, but don't tell anybody about it. Uh, And then Luke records this in verse 15. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. And then verse 16 says this, but Jesus often withdrew, to lonely places, and prayed. 
or another one. This is Luke 6, 12 uh, through 16. And the context here is Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath. His, he had a withered hand and he heals his hand on the Sabbath. And then right after that, it says this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, his brother Andrew, James, John, etc. So there he actually goes away and spends the entire night in prayer with his father. And then he gets out of that, and, and in the next morning, he comes out, and from that time of prayer, he then cho- chooses the 12. He's got tons of disciples, but he chooses the 12 that he'll designate as apostles. And then one final example in Luke's gospel. This is now at the end of Jesus' ministry, his final night before his death. And I won't even read the scripture. I'll just describe it. But we know the scene where he's with his disciples uh, in the upper room, and he's spending time with them. He's washing their feet. He's uh celebrating communion with them. He's celebrating Passover with them. He's teaching them one last time. He's comforting them. It's a public moment with his, with his best friends. And then what he does after that is he withdraws to the Garden of Gethsemane with three of his disciples. And even he withdraws from them. And he has this time of intense interaction with his father. And it seems that out of that time with his father, something happens and, and his, his mind is set on what needs to happen. And so he emerges from that time with the father and he heads towards this, these guards and the mob that's coming towards him and he engages in his final hours of life. All right, so all that to say, a little sampling from beginning to end of his ministry. And the basic point that I think is obvious that I want to be making is you see this rhythm in his life of, of all this fruitful kingdom life, right? Ministry, love, grace, healing, teaching, But then you also see that that emerged from this life-giving center of this relationship with his father that was deep and rich and intimate. I want to show you an image of what uh, some authors call uh, the cycle of grace. And it's really this rhythm that we see in Jesus' life. And to use the vine and the branches analogy, we could say there was this rhythm of of being centered and grounded in this, what I'll call kingdom abiding, right? Abiding in his father, drawing from his father, being centered in this relationship with his father. And that led then to this life of kingdom fruit, of love and grace and ministry. And you see this cycle of grace, receiving grace from his father and then offering that grace to others. To use Jesus' own analogy of the vine and branches, we might say that just as he calls us to abide in him to produce fruit, so also he abided in his Father, and as he did that, he produced fruit. What I want to do is I want to just spend a couple minutes focusing more on on this idea of kingdom abiding, how he abided in his Father. And I want to think together specifically about what did he receive from his Father in those moments? And there's so many answers. He received so much. But three things came to my mind as, as I thought about this. So first, he received just rest and refreshment from his father. I mean, imagine if your life job description was save the world, which is what Jesus' job description was. I mean, imagine the, the responsibility of that and the, the, all the, the, the fullness of your life and the busyness of trying to figure out what does it mean to be the savior of the world. There was so much ministry that he engaged in. And so the potential for burnout was so high. 
And so what you see is him just regularly withdrawing from this life of ministry simply to be refreshed by his heavenly father. And what's interesting in that to me is it seems like for Jesus, his relationship with his father wasn't just like one more thing on the to-do list. And I think that's what it is for some of us. We've got these lives we're trying to live in like, you know, time with God and, you know, do these sort of spiritual practices. That's just, it's one more thing on the to-do list. But in many ways, it seems to me in these passages that time with God for Jesus was actually the end of the to-do list, right? It was, it was, it was the stopping of all the to-dos of his life to simply do what the psalmist says, which is to simply be still and know that I am God. He, he came to his father simply to rest and be refreshed in his father's presence. So that's one thing I see. Um, another thing I see, and this really gets to the core of it, I think for me, is it seems like his sense of identity came from his time and his relationship with his father. What I would call uh, his sense of enoughness came from that relationship. And, and all of us, right, struggle with this, this drive. We want to be enough. We want to be a certain thing that feels enough. And it seems to me that Jesus got his identity, his sense of enoughness from his heavenly father. You know, at the baptism, Jesus heard those words, you're my son, I love you, I'm well pleased with you. That's, those are words that every child wants to hear from their dad. And Jesus got to hear those before he'd even started his public ministry, before he had done anything. His identity was secure and rooted apart from any ministry he did. But you can imagine as he began to engage in ministry, all these other voices must have been going on in his, in his head. Some of those were, were the voices of praise, right, from the crowds, all the hype, the, the, the affirmation, the, the accolades, the, you know, the, the fame that was his. And, and we see what those kinds of voices can do to certain people. And he had to confront those voices in his own mind. And then, of course, he had a, a whole other set of voices, these voices of, of condemnation and, and judgment and and conflict and, and accusation that came from the religious leaders and, and other people. And, and so he had all these voices that were part of his life. And so what he did regularly is just withdraw from all those voices and return to the one voice that mattered. It was the voice of his father saying, you're my son. I love you. You're the beloved. That's who you are. That's what defines you. Not what these people think of you. That doesn't define you. It is your relationship with me. That is where you get your identity. You're the beloved. You're my son. And it seems to me that Jesus doing, all of his doing flowed from his being. It flowed from being the father's beloved. So he got a sense of identity as he met with his father. And then finally, it's clear in some of these passages, he also got guidance and discernment from his father. Again, if your job is to save the world, that's <laughs> a big job. How do you go about doing that? You know, like what, what are the steps and, and what are the, the plans you make and the steps you take to do that? And there's so many ways that Jesus could have tried to do that. And so it seems to me that he would get away and be with his father to receive guidance from his father, discernment on what to do next. I think the passage, the first passage we had read today, you see that Jesus has this epic day of ministry in this town. It's fruitful. It's hopping. There's great things in and then what he does is he gets away with his father and then he discerns, actually, I need to move on to the next town because that's why I was sent. If it were me, I'd be like, man, we got a good thing happening here. We're going to stay here. We're going to camp out in this town for a long time. And in his humanness, Jesus could have easily done that. But his father guided him and he realized, no, no, my purpose is to go and do this with many towns. So I need to go to the next town. 
Or you think about the, that, that night he spent the entire night uh, with his father, discerning who are the 12 men, Father, that you want me to choose to be apostles. And again, from a human standpoint, I think Jesus made some bad choices. Like we would say some of these guys probably weren't the best choices. Um, but from a spiritual standpoint, they were absolutely the men that God wanted to fulfill the task. And so Jesus spent the whole night receiving guidance and discernment from his father, then moved him to make these decisions. All right, so to look at this image again, we see him, we see this kingdom abiding with the father that provided refreshment, provided identity, and provided guidance from his father. And that because of that, then there was all this kingdom fruit. I'll mention three briefly. You see, out of that relationship with the father emerges this life of, of love, and grace. And really, it was a love that simply flowed from the love and grace that he was receiving from his father that he then gave to others. We see a life of power and authority as well. And again, that flowed from his experience of God and God's power at work through him. And then we see this life of freedom. He had so much freedom from people's expectations because his identity was rooted in the father. And so he was free to live out the purpose God had for him. All right. So, there's just a, a brief sampling from the master himself, this cycle of grace, of kingdom abiding and kingdom fruit. And so what we'll do in the next couple months is we'll look at what are specific ways that we can abide? What are specific ways we can draw on, on the grace of God and the power of God and the truth of God in our lives? But I wanna leave you at this first week with this very simple thought, and it's this. If we wanna live the way Jesus lived, with love, with grace, with courage, with purpose, with freedom. We have to learn to abide the way Jesus did. I mean, Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was the Messiah. So if he needed to abide in his Father, you can imagine how much more we, these sinful, broken, frail people that we are, need to abide as well. And I want to leave you with a quote uh, from Dallas Willard that comes at the introduction of his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. And he makes this analogy that, you know, Jesus is our hero, right? Jesus is, is the one we want to idolize. And he makes a sports analogy to young kids who will have like a, you know, a, a star athlete that they idolize. And I want to read to you what he says. It's very compelling to me. He says, when kids are playing in a baseball game, they all try to behave exactly as their favorite baseball star does. And we can imagine doing that. They try to hit the way he does. They maybe try to throw the ball the way he does. They try to slide you know, into home the way that the, the baseball player does. Will they succeed? Well, we all know the answer quite well. They won't succeed if all they do is try to be like him in the game itself. He says, those exquisite responses we see from the star athlete aren't produced by the short hours of the game itself. They are available to the athlete for those short and all-important hours because of a daily regimen that nobody sees. And he goes on to talk about things like a proper diet, proper rest, proper exercise, and training on the fundamentals, and just doing the basic mechanics over and over and over again, That all that it requires to become a great athlete. And then here's the quote that really hit me. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. And then he applies this to our spiritual lives. 
Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone around us does. That's not the way it works, right? The key then is to learn from Christ how to live our total lives. We must learn how to follow his preparations, the disciplines for life in God's rule that enabled him to receive his father's constant and effective support while doing his will. I just love that. So I leave you with that thought. If we are going to live the kingdom life that Jesus lived, we're going to have to learn how to abide the way Jesus did. So I'll leave you with that question. How are we abiding with God these days? Well, as we look to Jesus and the life-giving relationship he had with his father, a relationship that fueled, inspired, empowered, and centered his ministry, it begs the question for us all, what am I drawing on to live my life? I think sometimes when we perceive something might be amiss in our life, when we see some of our priorities out of whack, or when we perceive there is a dissonance between our stated values and what our honest, deep-seated values really are, we can all too quickly jump into a, I can fix this mode. When actually, what we may need first is just to pause and thoughtfully consider more deeply what's inside of us. Assessing what's there or what's not there and bring whatever that is, the good, the bad, the ugly, before the Lord and say to him, here I am, Lord. This is true about me. And if you were to take some time and look at what's driving you, what's underneath it all, what might you find there? Could you say that your intimate relationship with your Heavenly Father is at the center of your life? Or is there something else in that place? Maybe you find yourself driven and motivated by the values of this world and you're going after those things that are at the core of your ambitions. Or maybe you really care about trying to be a good person. And so pursuing a life of religion is what you're drawn to, trying really hard to be and look the part of the good girl or guy, or to live the right kind of life, or at least try to present to the world that kind of persona. So what's fueling your life? Is is it flowing from your life with God? Why don't we just take a moment to reflect and consider these things? And as you do, if you unearth some things that aren't great, the point here isn't to evoke in you a spirit of guilt or shame, but simply to encourage you to be honest with yourself and bring that reality to the Lord, laying it before him, all the while remembering that Jesus loves you and longs for you to be with him. And he is with you. What he has for you is not a spirit of condemnation, but rather an invitation to drink from the source of living water. That is Jesus, our true spiritual food and refreshment, the one who will inspire and fuel your life and bring you great joy and freedom. So let's take a moment to do some of this work right now.
Father, I suppose on one hand, it's a bit frightening to be fully known, all our hidden parts, all our blind spots, everything laid bare before your eyes. But this is what is true about you. You you know us completely. And so, Lord, we want to surrender our tendency to try to cover and hide because we know the notion that we can hide anything from you is absurd. So we say, okay, here I am, Lord. You know what's within us, what moves us, what drives us. You, you know where our affections lie. So Lord, where those things are not in alignment with your heart, where uh, they are not congruent with your kingdom, would you do a work of transformation within us? Would you give us hearts that long for the true source of the abundant life, the good life, a life lived with you and a life lived from you? Would you help us, Father? We look forward with faithful expectation that you indeed will work in us according to your will and your loyal love towards us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Well, we hope you've been encouraged by God's Word today, and we encourage you to keep the conversation going by engaging the discussion questions at the end of this video. Now, let me close our time with this benediction drawn from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. May our Heavenly Father strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.